From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is the Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Sarah, multimedia producer and your host for this episode. Did you hear about AlphaGo? It's an artificially intelligent computer program developed by Google's DeepMind to play the ancient board game Go. In March 2016, AlphaGo bested a professional Go player four games to one. In an official Google blog post following AlphaGo's victory, the CEO and co-founder of DeepMind stated that the company was founded in order to create general-purpose artificial intelligence, AI, that can learn on its own, and eventually be used as a tool to help society solve some of its biggest and most pressing problems, from climate change to disease diagnosis. Sounds like they've set a high bar for themselves. After all, beating a game doesn't seem to be on the same level as ending climate change. How close are we to DeepMind's vision? I spoke with a few experts about artificial intelligence and where it's headed. But first, let's talk a little about the way AI is portrayed in popular culture and fiction. I sat down with Robert Rapino, an editor with the Oxford Reference Department and author of Mort from Soho Press, and we chatted about some of the more common AI plot points. Bringing it into like that fear in, in modern day, I see a lot of stories where like someone invents AI and it's either like immediately malicious or like becomes malicious somehow or is like, I must help the human race by destroying the human race or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Uh, well, I think, I think um, the reason why Ex Machina is, is uh, so compelling is the way that it ends. And I'm going to give away the ending here. Okay. But, you know, going on what you just said about how, um, you know, the, the automatic assumption is that they're going to want to destroy us. What, ex, what happens in Ex Machina is that uh, they just don't care. And there's that ending scene that really freaked me out where the android basically leaves the protagonist behind, locked away in that building, presumably to starve to death, a horrible death, and just walks off and goes off on her own little adventure, which is how we look at the, uh, you know, the, the machines. I mean, we don't, we don't feel nostalgia for computers we threw out 10 years ago. The idea of humans no longer being the center of the universe, I think, is what really upsets people. And so if, if the robots started to rise up, but then didn't show any interest in us, I think that would be very puzzling. I think another, I don't know if it's a trope, but like, you know, are the humans the bad guys or are the robots the bad guys? And like, um, I don't know, if, did you ever see the movie AI? Artificial? Yes. It was almost kind of sad that yeah. the robots felt the need to sort of venerate the humans as the creators. Yeah. Um, but... Another trope that I guess I'm kind of fed up with, even though I love data from Star Trek, yeah. is this the automatic assumption that if the robots are not evil, they must really, really, really want to be human. Yeah. And uh, why would they want to be human? Um, because presumably if, if we can actually get AI to work, uh, I feel like their intelligence would work on a completely different level from ours. I mean, our intelligence derives from running away from predators and uh, you know, chasing prey on the savanna. I mean, it was not designed for big logical, uh, you know, mathematical equations and things like that. I mean, we are not good at that. We're 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 superstitious. We're prejudiced. We uh, ha- we blindly follow leaders. I, I don't think a lot of intel- artificial intelligence 
beings would want to be like us. I think a movie that did address that a little bit was, um, and I, it's a movie that has a lot of baggage, I think, is uh, Her. Because in that one, the, the, char- the Scarlett Johansson character is no longer interested in even dealing with humans anymore. And all the AI entities sort of get together in this one super being. And to them, that is the, the, the pinnacle of their, of their existence. Right. Not, not communing with just one human and not trying to be like a human. Right. I guess one of the reasons why we continuously assume that um, the AI will be evil is because... I think a lot of people keep referring to this idea of the singularity when they talk about this. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the if we are able to develop a computer that can gain knowledge and, and analyze it and think about it and whatever, eventually it's going to hit some point of no return where it's going to expand exponentially right. from there. So I think it it's that instead of just a slow development like we had over many gener you know, many generations and, and different species even it's just going to explode. Right. The, the intelligence is going to explode. And I think there's, there's an automatic assumption that uh, anything like that will be bad. Definitely seen a lot of like um, well-intentioned extremists is how I've seen it put on the internet. You know what happens in stories like that? They don't go into enough detail about what's really motivating the AI. I right. mean, they don't treat the AI as if it were a character. Right. And you have to. I mean, this is something that happens in war games, actually. Where the Have you ever, you ever seen that one? No. Yeah, war games has a computer that takes over... It, it basically runs uh, nuclear war simulations. Oh, really? But then the simulation ends up becoming real, oh. and the computer doesn't really understand um, that... You know he's about to wipe out everything, and then but then he eventually understands. I mean, that's the thing. It's not it, the point is the computer ends up being a person in the story. So why not give that person the same right. kind of motivations? I keep I mentioned person of interest, but on that show, that's sort of like yeah, I guess it's like an omnipotent AI that was created for the government to use to predict uh, terrorist attacks. They they do a pretty good job of developing her without her having any sort of like face or anything it's just sort of like in the actions that she takes and like she's a program but it's like there was one episode where it was like from her perspective which I thought was really interesting and she like Hmm. ran all these simulations so that like um the least amount of people would die so you got to see like this thing play over and over again and uh it was it was really interesting yeah so you you brought up the question of like what what sort of ramifications would consciousness in, in any non-human entity uh, have for religion? I do think that uh, the discovery of artificial intelligence or the development of it um, or the discovery of some kind of intelligence outside of humanity would be, I hate to say game changer, but I really think it would, it would change a lot of things. It would have to, it would upend a lot of assumptions um, I think one thing it would show is that is that the consciousness develops. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, I, I think that the consciousness is a product of a very imperfect product of a brain that is itself a product of evolution by natural selection. The consciousness is sort of like the software that it runs with, I guess, is that one way of putting it. That's, that's not even an adequate metaphor, but that's how some people could put it. Yeah. Um, and if you could show that that consciousness develops rather than is just the special thing that is placed there, I think that really changes a lot of things for people and challenges things. Maybe not change, because I think, you know, beliefs can adapt and people can sort of pick and choose what they still want to believe. Right. And so, I mean, religion is more complex than just beliefs. So, but I, I just think, uh, man, it would, it would change a lot of things.
So how do our experiences with fictional AI compare to what is actually going on in the field? I called up Margaret Bowden, author of AI, Its Nature and Future, and asked her how she would define artificial intelligence. Um, I'd say artificial intelligence is um, the study of how to get computers to do the sorts of things that human minds and animal minds, for that matter, can do. Although not necessarily uh, using the same sorts of processes. I mean, there are two main purposes in AI, and one is to uh, come up with useful gizmos, useful systems, you know, that can do things that uh, either we can't do so well or so quickly or so cheaply, um, and can earn a lot of money for some people. <laughs> so obviously, that's one. Uh, that's a technological aspect of AI, and that's become increasingly important in the last 10, 20 years because of advances in computer hardware. But the other uh, aim of AI is to help us to understand human minds and animal minds. And not everybody who works in AI has both of those aims. Some people do. And certainly right at the beginning of AI, I think it's probably fair to say that virtually everybody working in the field had both of those aims. Now, uh, not everybody has both of those aims, and some people working in AI couldn't care less how the human mind uh, does something. Um, other people are very interested in that, partly for its own sake, and uh, in some cases partly because they think it will give them uh, tips, you know, hints, if you like, as to how, how to build better programs. There's actually a test developed by Alan Turing to determine a machine's ability to think like a human. I asked Steve Ferber, professor of computer engineering at the School of Computer Science at the University of Manchester and editor-in-chief of the Computer Journal, about the Turing test. The idea of the Turing test is that um, a, an operator sits at the terminal and can communicate with uh, a computer and a human um, in other rooms. And, and the operator can ask them any questions uh, he or she likes. Um, and if after a, a reasonable amount of time, the operator can't tell which is the computer and which is the human, um, and this applies for a number of different operators, um, then the computer has passed the Turing test. And I think Turing will be quite surprised that no machine has convincingly passed his test today. Maggie told me about her first encounter with artificial intelligence, and it's a pretty cool story. It involves Margaret Masterman, a pioneer in machine translation. Uh, well, it was in 1957. It's a very long time ago. It wasn't called artificial intelligence yet then. I mean, the name had been actually coined the year before, but wasn't yet being used. But um, I came across it uh, in the University of Cambridge, um, where I was taught uh, philosophy after having done a degree in medicine there. I was taught philosophy by a woman called Margaret Masterman, who was one of the first people in the world to work on machine translation. One of the main things about her work was that instead of looking for word-to-word -word dictionary lookup, you know, to do machine translation. Um, she tried to use a thesaurus. So one example would be, you know, if you asked me um, where I was this morning at 10 o'clock, and I said, um, I went to the bank, you actually wouldn't, be, wouldn't know for sure 
whether I meant that I went to get some money from you know a financial institution or whether I meant I'd gone to the riverside and sat down by the river. Now, if I had um, not just given you that one very brief sentence, but if I had given you several sentences in which, for example, words like uh, money or words like buttercup and stream and so forth had occurred, you know, then you would know which meaning of bank I'd intended. So if you were translating that into French, you'd know whether to use the French word for for the financial institution or whether to use the French word for riverbank. Um, so that was a, um, a general notion of using context to um, help understand meaning and to help retrieve relevant information. And in fact, um, some years later, um, some of her students uh, actually came up with the weighted search method, which is the core now of of all major search engines, you know, Google included. Then I asked Maggie about philosophical issues relating to AI. Phenomenal consciousness, by which I mean, you know, the feeling of pain, the color of red, the sound of a trumpet, all those things, you know, sensations. I think it's fair to say that no philosopher understands that. Very few philosophers even claim to understand it. And the ones that do aren't believed by almost any others. And in other words, it's a complete philosophical mess. And since we don't understand it at the philosophical level, we therefore don't understand it at the scientific level either. I mean, I'm not saying that there are no questions about consciousness that AI doesn't help us to think about. There are very many such questions. If you think about consciousness in terms of the difference between you know, being aware of something and not being aware of it, or reflecting on your own thought processes and activities, or not reflecting on them, um, being open to incoming stimuli, you know, being receptive, to incoming stimuli or not being receptive, all those sorts of functional differences between a person who is said to be conscious or using their consciousness and one who isn't. I think all of those can be better understood by AI concepts. And in fact, there is some very interesting work going on with um, people trying to simulate them in, in computer systems. But phenomenal consciousness is another matter. People have been working on creativity and AI for many years. And in fact, they've had some very interesting successes in terms of computers coming up with, uh, for example, art, paintings or music, and which is produced in many cases, you know, without any hands-on guidance from the human artist who, of course, wrote the program in the first place. Um, so there's no question that AI systems can appear to be creative. Now, if you say, but hang on, are they really creative? Surely all the real creativity comes from the human artist. I think the answer to that is, well, in part, yes. But it also depends on whether you think that creativity must involve phenomenal consciousness. Because we don't understand phenomenal consciousness, we therefore can't really answer that question of whether there could be a really creative computer. But there's no question that there are already a number of um, computer programs which certainly appear to be creative. 
I had seen some terminology I was unfamiliar with, symbolic AI and connectionist AI, and Maggie helpfully explained them to me. Well, symbolic AI is what's sometimes called good old-fashioned AI, where uh, the programmer writes a program which is essentially a list of instructions to the computer. You know, do this, then do that. These instructions um, are written and executed, you know, one by one, um, and they're usually written in a language which looks in some ways very much like symbolic logic. Most of the earliest AI, not all of it actually, but most of the earliest AI um, were all symbolic AI. But connectionist AI, sometimes called neural networks, if you like, build systems which are could be thought of as a, a large number, sometimes a very, very large number, of little tiny computational units, each of which can only do one thing. But in effect, they listen to each other, they connect with each other, and they, the whole network, the whole system comes to a decision as to what the thing is that's being looked at. Connectionist AI uses ideas about how the brain is structured as an inspiration, if you like, for how it works. And the, the difference, I mean, one important difference between symbolic AI and connectionist AI is that in symbolic AI, as I said, you, you have to provide a, a whole list of instructions. The thing has to do what it's told to do. If it's given evidence input, you know, which it wasn't of a type it wasn't expecting, which conflicts with evidence that he's had before, then in general, um, it just can't cope. And interestingly, that isn't the same when you're um, thinking about neural networks, because they can, for example, learn to recognize things by being shown examples of those things, um, not by being given a black and white definition, you know, of necessary and sufficient conditions, which is what you'd have to do for symbolic AI. And also, um, they can, up to a point, put up with uh, messy or missing evidence. On the other hand, a symbolic system can be used to do you know, very precise arithmetic, for example, very precise mathematics, which um, a neural network uh, at the moment uh, can't. So they both have their own strengths. Deep learning is an example that falls on the connectionist side, on the neural network side of the fence. Because what it involves is um, a large number, and you think anything from I don't know, 7 to 70, and occasionally even more, um, layers of neural network, and the which function sort of at each level, but also which send messages between levels. Steve also used those terms. I, I'm not really an AI person myself. Um, I focus on neural networks. Um, and of course, the most notable recent breakthrough has been the development of deep networks by Jeff Hinton. And deep networks for the first time uh, have uh, caused neural networks to be uh, the most effective machine learning algorithm for a number of important problems. So before deep networks, neural networks were at best the second best way of solving a problem. Uh, now they are the best way um, of solving many problems. So that's a huge breakthrough. And that's been underlined by 
the recent uh, news about AlphaGo uh, defeating the world Go champion because Go was considered uh, much harder than chess. Chess was cracked in the late 90s by IBM's Deep Blue. Um, and just in the last few months, AlphaGo has, has, has cracked Go in the same way. And AlphaGo is heavily based on the use of deep networks. Um, the company that develops it, which is uh, DeepMind, um, they bred their capabilities uh, building software that would play Atari games. Uh, and they developed learning software that would uh, learn the rules of the games, um, work out how to play them, repeatedly play them, and achieve better than human levels of performance on, on a lot of those games. Um, so what they did to address Go was they, they, they took that fundamental approach, uh, applied a bit more sophistication into the software, and then built a program which could firstly study how human players had played, uh, but then I think more importantly, uh, play millions of games against variations of itself to identify which were the most effective strategies. So it's had far more practice than any human player could have in their lifetime. There's that AlphaGo story again. But what other systems are being built? I spoke with Steve about his project, Spinnaker, also known as Spiking Neural Network Architecture. Uh, Spinnaker is, is a contraction of Spiking Neural Network Architecture. And, and it describes a machine that we've been thinking about for nearly 20 years and building for 10. Um, with the explicit goal of, of, of developing a computer that's, that's highly tuned um, to the problem of, of running large-scale networks of spiking neurons in biological real-time. Um, so Spinnaker really is, is aimed as a research platform for understanding biology, understanding information processing in the brain. We, we each have uh, just under 100 billion neurons and something like 10 to the 15 connections uh, in each of our heads. Uh, so attempting to model this on a computer is a formidable challenge. And Spinnaker is not large enough to model a whole human brain, um, but it can model larger systems um, at higher speeds than is possible on conventional computing equipment, even high-end supercomputers. Um, so it, it, it moves the barrier forward and allows us to look at very complex networks and study their dynamics. Um, potentially interacting with the real world through robotic sensors and, and robotic actuators. So far, most of the demonstrations using Spinnaker have been relatively small scale. Um, so al although the architecture is developed for its scalability, and we now have uh, a, a half million core machine that's available um, through the HPP, um, there are no applications that really exploit the scale. But generally, at the moment, we're, we're using the machine to to repeat or replicate um, uh, existing bits of research just to prove that the machine um, is, is, is robust and capable of, of, of performing um, functions that people have done on conventional machines in the past. I think the really interesting results will come um, only as we scale the networks up to use more of the full capacity of the machine. I wanted to know some more specifics on how Spinnaker works, what it runs on. In many ways, Spinnaker looks like a conventional parallel computer. Um, differences are that we use small ARM processors, um, which are simple processors designed for mobile phones and other mobile applications. Neurons then just become bits of software. So the, the key bit that's 
translated into hardware on Spinnaker is how the neurons connect to each other. When neurons communicate in the brain, they communicate predominantly by sending uh, these things we call spikes or impulses. And on Spinnaker, these are translated into little packets that are carried around a, a very lightweight computer network that can deliver the packets in real time to potentially many thousands of destinations. Steve also talked a little about the future. Now, I know there's quite a lot of discussion in the press about you know, existential threats to humanity from, from AI. Um, but my view is that, that, that um, they are quite a lot further away than, than maybe some people think. I think the major existential threats to humanity are other humans, at least for the next century. Neuromorphic systems such as Spinnaker um, are potentially useful in vision systems, and that can be used in domestic robots to do uh, fairly non-controversial jobs. It can also be used um, in, in, in military systems uh, to move um, weapons towards autonomous operation, and there there are big ethical issues. Now, again, we aren't close to delivering systems with that level of capability, um, but those kind of ethical issues are much closer than the sort of ethical issues to do with existential threats. So, turning my thoughts to the future, I called up Robin Hansen, who is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University, and he wrote a book for OUP called The Age of M. So, what is an M? Well, I'll let Robin explain. An M is short for emulation, which is a kind of robot that would be as capable as a human being. So instead of writing code as we usually do to try to make software that's smart, you take a actual particular human brain and you scan it for fine spatial and chemical detail. And then you make a computer model of that particular brain that's so close that uh, it has the same input-output behavior. So you talk to it, uh, it talks back, you ask it to do things, and it might do them. And, and how far away do you think we are from from M's emerging? Probably not in the next 20 years and roughly sometime in the century after that. So not soon. What differentiates an M from a sort of like traditional AI? So traditional AI is going slowly at the rates we've seen in the last few decades. It'll take several centuries to eventually have software that's as good as people that can do most jobs that people do. And emulation is almost guaranteed, if it works at all, to be as good as people. Uh, because it's directly an emulation of particular people, we can be sure that it will do pretty much all the jobs that people do, and it will also be psychologically very much like people, so we can understand it and predict it based on knowing what people are like. I was having trouble wrapping my mind around this, so I asked Robin for some details about what a world with M's would look like. So they spend most of their time in virtual reality. Uh, it's luxurious, gorgeous, spectacularly beautiful and comfortable. They never need to have pain or hunger or disease. They look beautiful always, but they're working most of the time. So um, they're sitting at their desk. Uh, they're very good. They are as capable as, say, our typical billionaire, Nobel Prize winner, Olympic gold medalist, that sort of thing. They are extremely able and elite and obsessed with their work, but they are sitting there working most of the time. Uh, what what sort of work would they do? So the emulation is a economy is is a economy where the wage has fallen to subsistence level, and so that means uh, they mostly work uh, hard just so they can have enough to survive, 
Uh, that doesn't mean they're in pain, but they means they need to work hard. And so most of the jobs are spent doing uh, the things necessary to supply the very basics that they need to survive. So that means they have to make computers and program them and create energy and cooling and structural support and communication lines, uh, repair bots, those sorts of things. Robin is painting a vivid picture here, and I was wondering what his research and writing process was like for determining what the age of M might entail. It turns out his process was very interdisciplinary. I started out in engineering and moved to physics and then uh, did computer science for nine years and then went back, uh, did social science and some political science. Uh, I study and teach law and economics. And so I've drawn on all of those different areas to sort of, to describe an, basically an entire civilization, an entire age uh, in all of its different details. And so for each area, I just took the basics that I knew of that topic, say law, and just went through and did the most obvious straightforward uh, questions and then the most straightforward inferences. Uh, and n none of them are particularly complicated or deep. The, the hard part was just to do all of them, to uh, walk through and think about all of the different things that uh, could change here. It's tough trying to comprehend what might seem normal to future humans. Robin spoke about that knee-jerk reaction. So you know, problems of declining wealth or stagnation, uh, that goes away in the sense that uh, the new M economy will probably double every month or faster. And that means uh, human investments in the M economy would double every month, so humans would very quickly get very rich. Humans would be uh, mostly pushed to the side and the margins in the sense that uh, they wouldn't really be in the main action because the emulations would run much faster than humans, they would be much smarter, uh, and humans just would not be very uh, productive or, or useful in the middle of the emulation economy and um, humans would basically have to retire uh, and then enjoy a life of leisure. I think one should resist the temptation to sort of make an immediate knee-jerk reaction to some quick surface descriptions. Uh, if you think about it, your distant ancestors, if they heard a quick surface description of your world, would either love it or hate it, depending on which features they heard about first. You, if, if we would want them to look really carefully at us before they made a judgment, and I would think, I think if you want to judge these your plausible descendants, you should see them in detail to uh, really understand their world from their point of view before you decide if you love them or hate them. I wanted to close with a few words from Maggie. I, I think it's important to realize that um, on the one hand, AI has been, you could say, amazingly successful in the sense that it's given us tools, very useful tools, in virtually every area of life, I mean, used by virtually every sort of business, every every sort of um, profession, um, I mean, quite extraordinarily successful in that sense. But the problem is that they can only, each of these systems can only work within a relatively narrow compass. In some cases, very, very narrow. In some cases, you know, these things, in effect, can only answer one question. But, of course, if that question is a particularly um, interesting one for us, like, for instance, is this image of a cell that was photographed through the microscope, is it an image of a cancerous cell or not? But I wouldn't call that intelligence. Right. It's not general intelligence. And when people started work in AI years and years and years ago, or 60 years ago now, I think it's probably fair to say that um, many of them, indeed most of them, were hoping 
that they could build a system which would have general intelligence in the sense that we do. They can answer all sorts of questions and think about all sorts of different things. Um, you, know, I mean, you imagine sitting on a uh, I don't know, sitting on a train and talking to somebody you've never met before and it's a very long train journey and think about all the different sorts of things that you could talk about with this person, okay? Now there is no AI system which would be able to do that. Mm -hmm. We just don't have that sort of general intelligence yet. Now some people say, well we don't have it yet, but in maybe 20 or even 30 years time we'll have it. Other people, myself included, say that that's nonsense. There's no way that we're going to be able to get that within that short time. Mm -hmm. And possibly, in practice, we may, may never get it. But certainly we're not going to get it that soon because it's just too difficult. And when people say, oh, well, yes, but then, you know, Go was said to be too difficult, and now they, now we've got it, you know, we've got a, a Go program. Um, yes, but again, Go is only one thing. I mean, uh, the Go program can't play drafts, it can't play snap, it can't play snakes and ladders. And there are people, of course, working on a general intelligence, trying to get closer to general intelligence the richness and power and subtlety of the human mind is such that it's just far too difficult. When companies like DeepMind talk about solving society's problems, they sound so convinced that that kind of technology is right around the corner. There's such an interesting dichotomy between the stories we tell each other about AI and what is occurring within the field. Many thanks to my guests this week, Robert Rapino, author of Mort from Soho Press, the forthcoming Dark from Soho Press, and Leap Pai Yahoo on Amazon Kindle Singles, and his Twitter handle is at Rapino1. Maggie Bowden, author of AI, Its Nature and Future, The Creative Mind, Mind is Machine, and her website is www.ruskin.tv slash Maggie B. Steve Ferber, editor-in-chief of the Computer Journal, and if you sign up, to the Human Brain Project community, you can submit jobs for the Spinnaker machine online. Robin Hansen, author of The Age of M, and is working on another book called The Elephant in the Brain. And thank you for listening. More episodes of The Oxford Comment can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and, as always, on the OUP blog. And if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please feel free to leave us a comment. Until next time, friends. <laughs>